Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivivani, the co-founder and CEO of Osmosis. Discovering your ancestry through a DNA saliva test is commonplace and very popular today. But when 23andMe started offering the service to consumers in 2007, it was breaking new ground. The company has continued to innovate in the space, expanding into testing for inherited risks for health conditions, pharmacogenetics, and clinical trials. Our guest today, Anne Wojcicki, has seen it all as the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe and recently led the company to its IPO on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Esther Dyson, who is also a guest on the podcast, for the initial introduction to Anne. And funny story, right before we started the podcast, Anne and I were talking about how I randomly met her mother, Esther, who herself is doing an incredible startup called Tract, and we'll have her on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, and we had a great time, and I think she even sent a photo of us, uh, and I gave her an osmosis mug as well. So you have a very impressive family, Anne, and it's an honor also to work with many of your colleagues at 23andMe, including Anne Greb and, and others. So thanks for joining us. Now we're going to be competitive about whose podcast is better. So I better get more views. <laughs> yeah, <we'll, laughs> that's a really good point. I can't imagine how competitive your household was growing up. Cutthroat, man. I bet. So I, obviously, I know a lot about you, and I, I bet a lot of our listeners already know who you are, and maybe many of them have done 23andMe tests as well. But maybe in your own voice, we'd love to hear what got you interested in, in healthcare in general and then starting 23andMe. I started my career very randomly investing in healthcare companies. And it was amazing. It was super fun, super interesting to be at the forefront of what's happening, seeing the biotech world, meeting with hospital CEOs, and it was fascinating. And then as I dug into it more and more, and I started to realize that so much of healthcare is really about the optimization of like, once you're in the system, but almost nothing is about how do you stay out of the system. And I went to one conference that was really traumatizing for me, where it was this giant room filled with people in suits, and they were all learning how to optimize billing, which is really about how, like, when you come in for a knee procedure, how do you make sure you get as much money as possible out of it? And I just remember thinking, I was like, I want my system to think about how are they keeping me healthy? And like, how do I stay out of the system? And um, what's in my best interest? And I just found it's not set up that way. And I was really inspired by the HIV community in the 90s and how they were activists. And they, you know, single-handedly really changed a huge part of healthcare. They gave patients a voice. They, um, you know, stormed the FDA. They demanded change. Like they helped bring about fast track authorizations. I mean, they were just amazing. And there's a movie that I always point people to called How to Survive a Plague. And it was that activism that I wanted to bring to all diseases and to everybody. And what had always captured me with genetics is the fact that genes and environment interplay. And so you can be high risk for something. And I love it. People sometimes come to me and they're like, oh, your genetics are not deterministic. And I say like, yes, that's the beauty of it all. Like it's not, you have an opportunity to live your life in such a way that you eventually can mitigate risk. And so I really want to understand like, what is in your environment 
that potentially helps minimize risk and then give people the tools to potentially change and really prevent disease. So 23andMe was started with this mentality of like, I want to be an activist brand. I want to um, empower people with their own genome. And then I want to power people to essentially come together and be the world's largest community that's driving research forward. And that we're going to focus on research on our disease areas, but also on research on wellness. That's incredible. And, and th- I definitely resonate with that story. I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins and biomedical engineer. My track was to go into surgery and do very expensive, like Da Vinci type robotic surgery. And then I, as I met a patient my first year of med school who um, had a 50 year history of smoking and they were throwing everything at him. Uh, the financial cost, the emotional cost to him and his family was obscene. Um, and if we had just been able to get a conversation with him early on and get him to stop smoking or not even start smoking, maybe we would have avoided the cost to him and his family and the health system. And so that's what made me switch to education and, and preventive medicine. So I definitely resonate with your story. And you all were some of the pioneers, are the pioneers in direct-to-consumer genetics, and I think generally direct-to-consumer healthcare. How does it feel not only this 14-year journey now going public, but also the other companies that probably started a couple of years after you guys or, or even more recently that are now, you know, there's this huge digital healthcare direct-to-consumer transformation with companies like Roe, Maven Clinic, and I mean, the list goes on. I love it. I love it. I mean, one thing that I've always said, healthcare is really big and it's important for us and other founders to encourage others to come and innovate. And I think it's really hard to change healthcare. Uh, There's a lot of incumbents that have a pretty good gig and are not looking for change. And there's such incredible opportunities with applying technology to healthcare and thinking about building a system in a different way. So I love hearing when people talk about patient-centric or consumer-centric healthcare and I'm really impressed. You look at Hims and Roe and clinics like Maven, Folks um, is the other one. Like there's so much personalization and consumer centric thought in these companies. So I love it, you know? And I think about the controversy with 23 Me in those earliest days about like, can you even get your genome? It was controversial, like, do you have access? And I remember thinking it was like, obviously, like, it's your body. Like, you can't prevent me from looking in the mirror. And I think it's really great to see people innovating now with these different models. I'm so excited about the future of where it's going. And in the earliest days, used to go to the Health 2.0 conference. I don't know if you ever went to that in like 2006, 2007. It was kind of scary the companies that were out then versus today. Like, it's just the sophistication, you know, the thought behind it. It's just, the industry is really matured and I I just, I love it. Yeah, no, totally. I think I I saw you speak uh, two years ago in Vegas at the- HLTH. HLTH, yeah, the health conference, which I think is coming up next month in Boston too. And that was pre-COVID. So, you know, there've obviously been a lot of crazy milestones, both professionally and personally, for 23andMe, but then the broader industry, you know, what are some of the changes you guys have had to address because of COVID? And how do you think about this? Is consumer-driven or value-based healthcare here to stay? You know, what, what do you think the lasting changes are? I think consumer-driven healthcare is here to stay. And I think one of the primary reasons why is I think that the existing healthcare system as it is really talks down to the individual. 
the times that I've worked in hospitals and you think about, you have a group of doctors who are kind of behind the stand and they're all talking, but like they stay separate from the patients. You have a white coat, you have to call them doctor so-and-so. You know, it's kind of structured in such a way that there's, there's a barrier. Like I think a lot in my mind about vaccine hesitancy and why is it that people don't believe scientists? And I do think that the healthcare world and a lot of scientists have really done a disservice by having this hierarchy and by being dismissive of people who don't have a PhD. I think that companies then like Goop and um, I'm forgetting her name, the actress who led the charge in um, autism. Yeah, Jim, Jim Carrey's wife. Uh, yeah, I forgot her name. Yeah. So like, she's well known in the healthcare industry. And like, why is that? And I think that's part of because people are looking for information and um, they're trying to find people who reach out to them. It's one thing that really aggravates me in the healthcare world is I meet so many physicians who are dismissive of 23andMe because they'll say people are never going to change their behavior. Like this example you gave on cigarettes, whatever. People are never going to change their behavior. And I think about those experiences when I worked in hospitals, like you're with a doctor that you probably don't relate to. And they tell you like, you're overweight, you stop smoking. And you're like, screw you. Like you know nothing about my life. But how do you deliver information in a way that's going to resonate with people? And I think one thing that we found with genetics is that when you get something in black and white, there is more of that aha moment. Like one of my doctors would say to me, he's like, Anne, you, you really agitate me. Like you take red haired, blue eyed people and you tell them they're high risk for skin cancer. He's like, anyone could tell them that. I'm like, yeah, but I got them to like come in and get a skin check. You didn't. So the reason why I think consumer health is here to stay um, is because I think enough people have kind of like, I think people are looking for a connection. And I think you now have companies that are responsibly reciprocating. Everything that's happened with COVID has opened up the door of saying like the supply and demand, like I have a sore throat and I want to talk to someone right away. I mean, if I had an urgent issue, I could call so many different services now. If I need at-home blood testing, I could call all kinds of different services. I could get it. So I think that supply and demand is now finally starting to be met. And I think it's no longer in the world of, you know, Jenny McCarthy and like some of, you know, Goop, I think is, has evolved more. I think that there's supply and demand. And I think that, you know, there's responsible care that's being delivered. And suddenly it's all supported thanks to COVID. Like COVID really forced us to all adopt a different way of thinking about healthcare. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And this is one reason we were excited to partner with you all and Anne Grab leading the charge as a genetic counselor, because first of all, there aren't even enough genetic counselors in the U.S. to see all there's 5,000 in the US and you know we aren't training as many that we need to, to be able to interpret these results. And so we need to go after more healthcare professionals to train them, which is again, partially what we've been doing together as organizations. This is the term raising the line. How do we improve the healthcare system by getting more people trained to become healthcare professionals, improve the quality and access. But then the other side flattened the curve, which has failed miserably, obviously in recent weeks in COVID. Flattening the curve isn't just about COVID, it's about diabetes, it's about skin cancer, it's about all these other things, because the more you can get patients or consumers engaged in their health doing preventive medicine, you know, you're flattening all those curves. So you need less healthcare providers, less cost to the health system, etc. So I think that's a really good uh, place to start. 
obviously we know your sister Susan too would love to get her on the podcast at some point. YouTube is where so many people get their content, same with Facebook and other places. You know, I'm curious, have you guys ever talked about this issue of health misinformation and like ways to address it, not only by giving people access to their own data, which is again, what you guys have been leading at 23andMe, but like, how do you get them to trust people again, trust either science or their doctors? So sometimes people don't even trust their doctors, right? Uh, we talk about this all the time. I think one thing that's important to do is there's a lot more people who are very good at generating bad content than there are people at generating good content. <laughs> and so like, if you ask most doctors, do you have a TikTok account? They're like, no. You know what they're called, by uh, the way, the doctors on TikTok? They're called TikToks. TikToks. So they, but most doctors are not going to have a voice there or not. Most are, are just not necessarily great at social media, but there's lots and lots of other people who are activists spreading misinformation. You know, you think about Joe Rogan and what he's very capable of doing in terms of spreading misinformation. So what you really need, like this next generation of physicians and healthcare professionals need to be generating content. I have this one doctor I follow on um, Instagram and on TikTok and he's hysterical. Like he does the best COVID impersonation and he like, he makes it as like, a, again, it's, it's so fun. It's like a little like, you know, 30, 60 seconds of drama, but finding people who are really catchy and, you know, creating fun content that people can relate to or finding people they can partner with, like there needs to be more content. You have to, in some ways, drown out the bad content. Absolutely. Because it's more engaging, more fun, or, or it's elevated. And that's, you know, I don't know if you know this, but we work with the CDC and YouTube, YouTube as YouTube health. I'm sure you know, Garth Graham, who leads that effort. He was on our podcast yeah. and are doing all this content in our style around, around that to flatten the curve. And, and, and now we're working with Facebook too, because Facebook, I think is, <laughs> has not done as good of a job as YouTube has in terms of bottling that. So you know, there's so many things that you guys have done at 23andMe over the last 14 years. What are some of the things that you're most proud of? And, and can you also give our audience a sense of scale now, but company size, but also I think last that I saw was 10 million tests were done or 10 million unique people. Yeah. Uh, probably, that's probably way outdated. We're to um, over 11.5 million people done it. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that we're still direct to consumer. So it, in some ways it taps a little bit back to your last question in terms of consumer centric care. Very few other companies are direct to consumer. Like they still have a physician intermediary. Most of the programs that are focused on smoking cessation or type two diabetes all come through your employer. So you as an individual can't really buy it yourself. And I think there's something still that is disempowering by having it intermediated by someone else. Like your employer decided this was good for you. And it's always really different too, to market to someone directly versus to market to somebody through an employer channel. So what I'm really proud of is like, we have a true direct-to-consumer brand. I have a brand that people understand, people know. Um, it has an activist angle on it and people are empowered. Like they learn about genetics on their own. And I've gone through the fight to show that you don't need to have a doctor hidden in like a clock, like, you know, behind doc in the box that authorizes for you. Like you're truly capable of getting it on your own. And I'm really proud of that. 
so like I said, we have 11.6 million people. We have um, over 80% of our customers consent for research. So we have by far one of the largest research communities out there. We get tons of phenotypic data every single day. We're able to do tons of research. We have, you know, well over a hundred publications. I can't remember how many tons of papers. Like, and it's super interesting stuff. Like we just had a publication on, uh, or a blog post on Marmite and why some people genetically don't like Marmite, which I don't. Um, and things like vanilla versus chocolate ice cream. Like we can do research in such interesting areas as well as obviously in serious phenotypes. Um, so we, we do have a therapeutics division as well now. We are looking to how do you translate all this information and then really help our customers benefit by developing therapies. And I do think that we have an opportunity to develop therapies in a, in a different way and then hopefully be able to sell them in a different way so that people feel really good about the process. I've always found it remarkable that, you know, you can have a pharma company like Gilead that cures a disease, like eliminates hepatitis C and people hate them. It's a total tragedy. To me, that's a, that's a question of process. And that's one thing that we're looking to change. Like you should have a direct connection to people. And when you have that direct connection, I think you can actually really then, you know, meet their needs better and hear it, listen to them. And um, I want to be the first company that develops therapies that people love. Yeah, I, I think there was a consumer stat showing that pharma companies and tobacco companies had about the same uh, view by consumers, which is crazy because one makes cigarettes that kill people. The other one, as you said, makes life-saving drugs. And I think because of what Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and those companies did over the past year, year and a half with the COVID vaccine, hopefully their stock has increased, uh, not just actual stock, but you know the, their consumer perceptions. You're talking big picture. Where do you see 23andMe going in five to 10 years? You've reached 11.6 million people who've done the test. Is that going to be 100 million? Like, uh, you know, what are you most excited about for the coming years? Listen, there's clearly a world where every single person has their genetic information. Like everyone will benefit from it. And I think that what 23andMe can really lead on in the future is the application of genetics to true clinical care. And through that also really helping people apply the genetic information to parts of their life to change behavior, to truly prevent disease. So when I think about the long-term outcome that I go for, I want people to be healthy at hundred. So I want people to be able to get genetic information and be able to use it. And to your, again, example on smoking, you know, really change their behavior and live healthier lives, like live to be a hundred and don't have any chronically managed disease, but just be healthy at a hundred. Hmm. I think you'd love, um, meeting if you haven't already, our largest, our person who led our seat around is Alan Patrickoff, who, who runs Greycroft. And now, oh, do you know, Alan, we went on a trip together once like long, anyways, I met him in 2003. We've been in Saudi Arabia. Oh, places. wow. Yeah. Alan knows everyone. It seems and he's the one who actually introduced me to Esther, who introduced me to you. He's, he's 86 and he's just like just getting started. He wants to live to 114. So well, I, I know we're coming up in time. So my, my last two questions for you, the first is just what advice would you give to our audience? Most of whom are, you know, healthcare professionals or, or will be healthcare professionals and other sorts of caregivers. I would say two things uh, that I think are um, totally actionable. Like one, I think absolutely embracing technology and, you know, thinking about all the ways this can be applied to the practice of medicine. 
So whether that's starting to think about, you know, online prescriptions, or obviously I encourage everyone should learn about genetics. There's no better way to learn about genetics than through your own DNA. Really starting to understand some of these behavior change apps, like how do they work and what are some of the limitations and what's some of the potential. And I sit on the board of Kaiser Permanente Medical School. And the dean came to visit and we went to the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And I set him up with all these different groups. He came over for dinner afterwards. I was like, what do you think? And he's like, holy cow. He's like, I have seen the future and we're not really part of it. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes I think some of the technology develops without thinking about the healthcare system. And I think sometimes the healthcare system functions without thinking about technology. So I think it's just important for people to stay involved. I would say the other thing is that for this generation that is, again, online more, there's the responsibility of creating content because you do have to swamp out, you know, some of the misinformation. And I think as part of doing that is doing that from the angle where you are approachable and not where you are a superior. If there's anything I could ever do, I think one of the most important things is um, trying to eliminate some of that hierarchy in healthcare. Like I recently spoke at this genetics meeting and it was all these people who I admired, all these famous geneticists. And I was telling my head of research, I was like, wow, it's like such an amazing group. Like I love all these people. I was like, but I'm the only one here who has no degree. And she's like, yes. And you are the only one that is widely known. (laughs) And in some ways that's too bad. Like more people with degrees should make sure that they are accessible. Yeah, it's totally speaking our language. And uh, one thing that makes me most proud of the work we do is we started this to for Hopkins med students when I was in med school, but we have tons of patients and family members who consume our content because it's the same content, not sacrificing any real content. And they're just, if you make it approachable and engaging, people will tune in. Um, and is that Mark Schuster, by the way, did he come over? Is, is yeah, that, I love him. He's great. He was on our podcast and all Kaiser Permanente students get osmosis access. So uh, it's a great school. Oh, good. Part of what influenced me so much is I am a KP, I'm a Kaiser baby. I love my pediatrician to this day. Like I'm almost 50 and I still, like, I feel like like part of the benefit of having children is I can go see my pediatrician. (laughs) Um, And I just felt like I was trained on prevention. Like KP absolutely taught me a world of prevention and how to think about like, when do I actually need to go in? I love the phone lines of how I could call people. I could ask them, they knew my name. My doctors are super approachable. I never call them Dr. So-and-so. It was such a phenomenal experience in every way. So that was part of why, again, I joined that board is because I feel like there's an opportunity for them to train more and more physicians under that mindset. Totally. Couldn't agree more. So my last question for you is, is there anything else I should have asked you or you wanted me to ask that our audience should know about you, 23andMe, healthcare in general, that you'd love to leave them with? You know, I would just encourage everybody. I think people should, again, it's my own selfish interest, but I think it's really an interest of people. People should all go and experience what it's like to have their own genome. Like I'm kind of shocked at how many health experts and how many healthcare people I talk to who haven't done it. There's a really awesome opportunity in prevention that's coming because of watches and your phone and community online. And I think that you know, physicians aren't really going to be able to be part of it if they don't have that experience themselves. So I think there's a ton of opportunity and I would just encourage everyone to jump in and do it. 
That's awesome. Um, we literally were just on the call with Anne and Katie and uh, Anthony on your team talking about how to do that and get it to our audience of you know 2.1 million YouTube subscribers and 1.7 million registered users. So hopefully we can be a small part of, of that bigger vision and uh, and really want to thank you for not only taking the time to, to join us on the podcast, but more importantly for ushering in this era of direct-to-consumer healthcare. So much fun. Great to be here. Awesome. And I, I'm sure this will get more downloads or at least I'll tell you we'll get oh. more downloads than, than your mom's. <laughs> it's very competitive. Let me just tell you, there will be a lot of smackdown going down in the house if I don't. Good to know. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to follow up. So thanks again. And with that, I'm Shivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.